Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Leticia Garcia's back was giving her trouble. She was 21 at the time, and her back hurt so badly. Eventually, she went to the hospital, where she lived in Orange, California. My back was hurting a lot. I think I had just got, like, had an infection, like a, like a UTI infection. But like they did all like they did all these scans or whatever. Like they didn't even say anything to me or like, oh, we'll talk to your medic or if you don't have anything, here's help or something, you know. Hospital staff did give her some medication for the urinary tract infection, and then they sent her home without giving her a bill. That's fairly standard practice in the United States. Medical treatment first, no real discussion of costs, receive bill later. Leticia was familiar with that process. She's been on Medi-Cal, the state's public health insurance, her entire life. The back pain resolved in a few days. Leticia believed she'd put the problem behind her, especially because, she says, she never received a statement or a bill for that visit. But then, years later, a brand new problem emerged in the form of a knock on the door when Leticia was informed she was being sued. I never saw anything. I never, the only paper I saw was when I got sued. Like an, like an 8,000, 7,000 bill. And I, and I tried calling them because I don't even like, you know, like, like owing money or anything. And I called them and I was like still trying to figure out how does this work? And she's like, you can pay a payment up to 3,000 now and then the rest in 15 days. And I was like, that's a lot of money. I can't afford that. They didn't, they didn't care. They were like, you need to pay us. The they wasn't the hospital. They were a private company who'd purchased what Leticia owed to the hospital. And they'd purchased that from the hospital. And they were now suing Leticia to collect the debt. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At the time, Leticia didn't even remember what the hospital visit had been about. It'd been two years. She was also confused. She was on California's public health insurance, which should have covered most, if not all, of her hospital bills. So, after being informed that she was being sued, she first called the hospital. That was fruitless, because they told her that once they'd sold the money she'd owed to a debt buyer, the problem was no longer theirs. Leticia didn't understand. She'd never received a bill from the hospital, never received any notification that the hospital sold her debt to someone else. So Garcia reached out to Medi-Cal, the state's public health insurance, and they said they couldn't help either because claim disputes must be filed within 18 months of the claim date, and Leticia was past two years. She was out of options. She had to fight the suit against her, in court. I didn't feel like I was there pretty much. I just I just remember like throwing up in the restroom and like falling asleep and like coming back and falling asleep, like but still awake. Medical debt buying is a fully legal, common practice in the United States. Buyers often bundled payments owed to hospitals and they get it on the cheap. They often pay about a dollar for every $100 of medical debt that they buy. So the hospitals get paid, and we'll untangle that complexity in a moment. 
and the debt buyers make a lot of money because they demand payment from the patient for the full cost of their medical care, not the discounted rate paid by the debt buyer. Leticia could not believe this was happening. She thought, how could the hospital have sold all her information to an outside company without her consent? I think it's disgusting and disrespectful that they do that because no one should know other people's businesses and that should be illegal, I feel. Because, like, I don't know, it was really personal and everyone was, like, hearing my situation and they were like, oh, like, this person, this. And, and, like, I'm still getting accused and, like, getting called a liar and I'm like, oh, I don't like that. (laughs) Now, health privacy laws, most notably HIPAA, do protect medical history and specific health information. But it does not necessarily protect information about how much you owe a hospital. However... Not all hospitals in the United States participate in this market. Estimates show it's about 25% of them. But since medical debt is fair game to sell, and because Leticia did actually go to the hospital that day and did receive those services, the judge in her case ruled against her. She had to pay the debt buyer. So now she's on the hook for an $8,000 debt she never even knew she had until that knock on the door. Like, I constantly feel like I'm going to get sued or any court paper that I get. I save them all. Like, I have a whole cupboard of all my paperwork because one day I have to jump back. You know, I'm ready. And, like, you take very importance in all those little papers that come in. And you want to show proof of everything. And I'm saving every little thing just in case. Leticia is appealing her case. So she hasn't had to begin her payments yet. But the thought that she still might end up having to pay really weighs on her. I don't even want to go to the hospital ever again. Like, for me, after that, like, that really, like, messed me up because that's just going to put me in another situation. Like, oh, if I go to the hospital, like, is that going to happen to me again? You know, I'm just so afraid. Like, like, I'm just going to wait to die and not go to the hospital. And that's what, like, probably a lot of people do, you know? That's Leticia Garcia. She lives in Orange, California, where she's a barista. Now, Leticia is not alone. According to a KFF health news investigation, more than 100 million Americans have medical debt they cannot pay. That's why more than 30 state and local governments are hoping to erase some of that debt. Places like Cook County, Illinois, Toledo, Ohio, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, New Orleans. And many are doing so by using money they receive from federal pandemic relief funding. But that relief isn't for all residents, just people who are up to 400% of the federal poverty level. And the debt is not being paid directly to individuals, but rather to the hospitals or to the debt buyers. The company is like the one who sued Leticia. So this is well-intentioned, we should say. But when federal funds are being used to buy medical debt from debt buyers, is that just fueling the very market that profits off people who cannot pay their bills? In the end, who really wins and who loses? That's what we're going to look at today. And we're joined now by Noam Levy. He's a senior correspondent at KFF Health News. He joins us from Washington. uh, And he's also an author of a major uh, investigation that KFF Health News did called Diagnosis Debt. Noam, welcome to On Point. Nice to be here, Magna. So we're going to get into how this industry works in just a minute, but I'd like to go through some of the numbers uh, about who's being impacted by this more with you to get a real accurate sense. 
I mentioned that fact from from your study about 100 million Americans, which is, you know, we're approaching a third of the population. But when we focus on adults specifically, how many Americans are we talking about? Well, we're talking 41 percent of adults in the U.S. have some form of health care debt. And that that could be uh, a bill that's not paid that goes on a credit report. It could be a bill that someone puts on a, a credit card and they don't pay it off. It could be a payment plan that somebody's on with a hospital or a dental office or some other provider. It could be a loan that someone's taken out from friends, family, payday lender, et cetera. When you put all that together, you get... 100 million people, which, you know, is 4 in 10 adults in the U.S. Oh, wow. And I'm looking here uh, at the diagnosis debt information right on the uh, KFF Health News website. And if you break it down by age, we're looking at uh, 30 ages, people ages 30 to 49. 69% of Americans in that age bracket have some form of health care debt. It's it's pretty stunning. Uh, and and I mean, we I've been covering healthcare uh, in this country for 15 years. Uh, anybody who's been around healthcare certainly knows, I'm sure, someone who's had trouble with a medical bill. But when you think about the scale of this problem and when you think about this is being generated, <clears throat> excuse me, by a healthcare system that is ostensibly supposed to be taking care of people and instead is... Uh, creating the kinds of problems that uh, the patient whom you you profiled earlier described, it's it's pretty stunning. Wow. And again, just to get a, a really accurate shape of the sense of this crisis, we heard earlier from Leticia, who had insurance through Medi-Cal, California's state-sponsored health care insurance. So she was covered, but still got uh, found herself immersed in this terrible situation. For others of this 100 million, I'm seeing that... Uh, you know, it's not that it's exclusively uninsured people, right? It's like 61% of them have insurance of some kind. No, most people who are in medical debt in this country have health insurance. And I think that's probably something that people might not realize at first, because historically, when we talked about medical debt in America, we talked about people who didn't have health insurance. This was before the Affordable Care Act, before Obamacare um, ex- expanded health insurance coverage. But now, because so many people in this country have health insurance that comes with a large deductible. They have to pay thousands of dollars before their insurance kicks in. You know, a trip to the hospital is going to cost thousands of dollars, you know, even for a little headache, usually. Um, Or there's a billing issue that comes up, like Leticia's. I mean, we don't know exactly what happened. Why didn't Medi-Cal cover her emergency room visit? There are are all manner of complexities and problems and inaccuracies with medical billing today that oftentimes send people on these terrible journeys um, down into medical debt. And I should add that one other thing that we found that I think that's worth noting, thats it's just heartbreaking, is that more than half of the people who have medical debt in this country report having to make some difficult sacrifice, cutting back on food or other essentials, um, taking on extra work, uh, moving out of their homes and having to move in with friends and family, um, draining their retirement accounts. Um, and in some cases, this has, you know, very real health consequences. You heard about the stress that Leticia's has gone through um, having to deal with this debt collection process. It doesn't take a, a medical degree to realize that that's, that's not great for your health. Yeah. Well, 
When we come back, we're going to talk more about how this industry works, the medical debt buying industry, uh, who participates in it, and the sort of range of things that people can find themselves suddenly in debt for. And by the way, I should note that uh, this project called uh, Diagnosis Debt, Noam, that you did was also in uh, cooperation with NPR and CBS News. So there's a lot of really great reporting in it, and we'll talk more about what you found when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're trying to understand how the medical debt buying industry works and who wins and who who loses when your hospital bills end up on a secondary market. And then sometimes you might get a knock on the door from someone who's saying they're suing you because you haven't paid. We're joined today by Noam Levy. He's senior correspondent at Kaiser Family Foundation Health News or KFF Health News. And he's author of a really big reported story called Diagnosis Debt. And we have a link to Noam's reporting at onpointradio.org. Um, so, Noam, you said something a little earlier that caught my attention, that people go to the hospital for all sorts of things, um, both big and little. You don't really know at the time when you're walking into the emergency room if it's going to be a you know a major or minor uh, fix. So that means that people can end up in the debt-buying market for all manner of hospital visits. So you found a woman, for example, whose medical debt ended up with a debt buyer because of the cost of a rape kit. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, yeah. This was a a particularly disturbing case. We interviewed hundreds of patients around the country, and Edie Adams was was one of them. And I think she's sort of uh, an indication that even a small uh, medical debt can just create uh, headaches and, and heartache for, for people. She was a college student in Chicago 10 years ago when she was sexually assaulted. And she went to the emergency room there and was examined as is pretty standard procedure. And then she went on with her life. They, they never ended up finding the person um, who was responsible. Um, she's now a medical student in Texas, but several years after this happened, she got a call from, uh, what turned out to be a debt buyer saying that she owed about $131 for this exam. And she was sort of stunned. She had been told by the hospital that, um, rape victims are in Illinois and in many states barred from being billed for, uh, these exams. And but the debt buyer said, well, okay. Um, they said, well, we'll look into this. Um, then 
she thought that was the end of it. Uh, six months later, a year later, another call. This time it's from another debt buyer. It says the same rigmarole. She's trying to explain what happened, why she shouldn't be charged. They say, we'll take care of this. That's the end of it. Six months later, another call. And this goes on for years. I mean, she said sometimes she would become frantic. She was sort of forced to relive this trauma that she had gone through because this debt kept being sold from one buyer to another. And like Leticia was explaining earlier, once the debt is sold, there's no recourse for dealing with the original provider. It turned out the medical group that had taken care of her was actually no longer in business. Um, Just just heartbreaking. Wow. You know... It sounds a lot like when mortgages get sold between one bank and another, doesn't it? What's different about medical debt buying? Well, I think this gets at sort of what the difference is between medical debt and other kinds of debt. I mean, mortgages, uh, you know, nobody sort of falls into buying a house by accident. I mean, it's usually something that people make a decision about. You're clearly making a contract with your lender. Same thing with even signing up for a credit card or getting student loans. But for medical Bills. I mean, this is a different kind of a quote-unquote contract between the patient and the medical provider. Most people don't choose to do it. They are seeking care oftentimes when they're in an emergency or under some duress. There's no discussion at the front end how much it's going to cost. Nobody sort of says, okay, well, here's going to be your monthly payment before you come in here to have your you know, heart looked at because you may be in cardiac arrest. Let's go through what the monthly payments are going to be. That's <laughs> yeah. just not the yeah. way it works. So you don't even know how much you owe until it's too late. That's what you're saying in most circumstances. Whereas for a house, you know how much you owe even before you sign that mortgage, right? Because it's clear. That's right. And the laws have actually been tightened around mortgages, as you know, yeah. since the, the, the mortgage crisis to make it absolutely clear. There is no there's virtually no equivalent in, in healthcare for that kind of arrangement. Yeah. And as far as I understand, again, using the mortgage comparison, when mortgages get sold and resold on the secondary market, the principal cost of that mortgage stays the same. Right. But for it's the interest that might fluctuate up and down. But it seems like it's very different for um, medical debt, because as we mentioned earlier, when the medical debt buying company or bank or private equity firm, what might have you, what might you have, you goes goes to the hospital and says, I'm going to buy this debt off of you. They buy it for a radically discounted rate. Now, is that discounted rate, does it end up being the same as the hospital might have been paid if insurance had paid? I just don't understand. I don't understand how that works. Like, why would the hospital be willing to sell, uh, sell medical debt at a 99% discount. Well, so as patients have been required to pay more and more out of pocket when they go seek medical care, this has become a problem, obviously, for medical providers, right? I mean, the old adage is, if I owe you $100, it's my problem. If I owe you $10,000, that's your problem. So for, for hospitals, it's a challenge to collect particularly large balances. And they end up sort of having to write off a, a, a large amount of the bills that, that patients owe them because patients aren't paying, and most often because they can't pay. And so uh, a, a medical provider may be confronted with a choice. How aggressively are we going to try to go after Megna to try to get this bill from her? Um, are we going to sue her? Uh, are we going to try to garnish her wages? Uh, maybe we'll just report her to the credit bureau, and once she sees this show up in her credit report, maybe she'll feel like she has to pay us. Well, for some hospitals and other medical providers, it may be tempting to sell the debt. And this is debt that they have essentially concluded, we cannot collect this. So it's, 
it's worth zero for us. So, you know, if, if, if somebody comes around and let's say I have $100 million in unpaid medical bills, someone comes up, they have a couple, they come up and they say, you know what, I'll give you, I'll give you a million or $2 million for that debt if you give it to us. Well, if my calculation is I'm not going to get anything from the patients, maybe I say, sure, somebody who's working in the financial office of a hospital may say, sure, I'll take that couple million dollars. That's better than nothing. And then I'm done with this problem. It's somebody else's problem. This medical debt collector will do whatever they're going to do. And, you know, we're going to go on our merry way. Okay. So, but then, I mean, the way you explained it then, Noam, that's what leaves the door wide open for a giant profit margin if the debt buyers are able to eventually collect from the patients. Well, that's right, but with a small caveat. So, again, if the debt buyer is buying a certain amount, hundred, in my example, $100 million worth of medical debt, their calculation is they're only going to collect some of that stuff, right? I mean, some of that medical debt is going to be virtually impossible to get. If, 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 if Mrs. Smith is on there and she owes the hospital $10,000, and she's barely above the federal poverty line. She's not insured. She has, you know, a job at uh, a low-paying service job. That debt, but the debt buyers have all kinds of algorithms that they use to sort of calculate the quote-unquote propensity of a of a debtor to pay. And they're going to look at that bundle of debts, and they're going to say, okay, we think we can collect from maybe, you know, twenty percent of the people on this uh, of the files that we that we've bought. Now, if they can collect even 50% of what's owed by 20% of the people who owe that money, they're going to make a lot of money. They're not going to collect it from everybody, and they're probably not going to collect everything from even the small people that they can collect from. But remember, they've only spent a couple million dollars to get this stuff. So if they can collect $4 million, that's 100% 100 profit right there. Yeah. Okay, so it's time to ask, Noam, who are these companies? Uh, I mentioned banks and private equity maybe some other just exclusive debt-buying firms. Do patients even know that that's who's coming for the money or that's who they have to pay? I think 99.99% of patients have no idea that this is going on. Even people who are contacted by a debt buyer sometimes won't know that the debt has been sold. They may think the hospital still owns it. I mean, th th there are... This is an industry, so there are special there are companies that specialize in what they call the secondary market for for debt, and some of them most of the secondary market is credit card debt. Mm -hmm. There's some mortgage debt. Mortgage debt has a lot of value because think about it. There's a there's an asset there, yeah. right? There's a there, medical debt has is typically among the least valuable pieces of debt to buy. There are a few companies that specialize in buying the medical debt. And they go out there, uh, they, they buy it, and then they run it through their, their process of tracking people down and calling them. Some of them will sue. Some of them don't sue. One of the larger medical debt collectors actually doesn't sue patients. That's a marketing, uh, a combination of a marketing strategy where they can go to the hospital and say, we're not going to sue your patients. Don't worry. Because hospitals have some concern about the reputation that they have. These uh -huh. are not credit card issuers, right? These are institutions that oftentimes care about their reputation in a community. So there's a, there's a, there's a whole, um, there's a whole, it's secret, frankly. I mean, there's no accountability. The hospitals don't report what they buy. The debt buyers are often private companies that don't publicly report any information. So it all happens, I'm sorry to say, in the shadows. Yeah. Well, it, and you say, and you, you show in your reporting that profit margins 
in what can also sometimes be called the patient financing industry, if they create a financing plan for the patient to to pay off their debt, those margins can be close to 30 percent, right, which is way higher well, than, than a, a hospital might expect. Well, that's right. And I want to make a, distingu- a distinction between debt buyers and patient financing okay. companies. Okay. So, so debt buyers are, are a subset of the people who are profiting off of this huge problem of medical debt. They are buying the medical debt, as we talked about. Patient financing companies, which are more frequently linked to private equity type groups, they will come to a hospital and they will say, we will take this debt and finance it for you. I see. So maybe the hospital still owns the debt, but the the financing company is saying, we will essentially administer the loan to the patient. Uh-huh. We will charge interest that can range 15, 20, 30 percent on these payment plans. It's a different form of debt. Sometimes the debt isn't sold per se. I see. But again, patients are subjected to a whole financing arrangement that sort of complicates their ability to understand <laughs> yeah. what they owe and to whom. Well, and as you report, the, the names of those po- financing companies are often right on the websites of the hospitals that they work with, and they're called wonderfully benign names like Atrium Health, right? Well, uh, Atrium is the hospital system, but they're oh, sorry, companies the like Access, Access One. One. That was it. Sorry, I got it confused. Care Credit is a, is a, is a market leader. They're, they're, they're a, a, a credit company. Yeah. But yeah. they, they make the money through those really fat uh, uh, interest rates, I guess. Financing plans, yeah. that's right. Okay, so let's get back to, thank you for the, making the distinction there, because healthcare is one giant wasp's nest of confusion to me sometimes. <laughs> um, but so let's get back to the medical debt buyers uh, themselves. So, Noam, hang on here for just a minute, because uh, we spoke with Jan Steger, executive director of the Receivables Management Association International. It's the largest trade organization for the debt buyers industry. And according to Steger, about 90% of all debt is being sold to her organization's 600 members. Steger says the debt buying industry gets a bad rap. And that's because when it began in the late 1980s, it was a bit of a wild west. They weren't sure if they were governed by the FDCPA, which is the Fair Debt Collections Practices Act. You know, were they creditors? Were they third party? There wasn't a lot of rules around purchasing, what the purchase and sale agreement had in it and things like that. Right. I mean, it was a brand new brand new way to to handle defaulted accounts. And so the industry grew and grew. And as it grew, it became more evident that this was an industry that was here to stay. That rapid growth did drive some bad practices. And that's why the trade association decided that they needed to develop standards. So in 2013, the group started a certification program that would ensure that their members would follow best practices. With certification and thankfully technology, we were able to put in requirements like our buyers cannot buy accounts unless it comes with certain data and documentation. So, you know, it's got to have the name, the social security number, the account, the balance. What they need to do is be able to establish with the statements and the terms and conditions and all of that, that you have the right consumer and you're collecting the right amount of debt. There are over 60 standards now under the certification programs, things such as you cannot restart the statute of limitations if the account has surpassed it, standards on credit reporting, along with education requirements. Today, a majority of the group's members are certified. And when it comes to medical debt specifically, companies have even more standards. And that's because 
you can't like dabble in medical debt purchasing, right? You have to be set up to comply fully with HIPAA and work with insurance companies and their other, you know, other, you know, charity care programs and things like that. And so people who purchase medical debt, honestly, I think I have two or three members that actually do purchase it. They are very specialized and they they know what they're doing. Therefore, Steger says she thinks the industry in general has done a good job self-regulating. And she says just because the medical debt buying industry may be disliked does not mean it's illegitimate. Let's face it. Nobody wants a phone call or an email from a debt collector, right? I mean, people generally are not pleased if they're in, are, are, you know, they have defaulted accounts. And so I think there is a big effort to try and figure out how not to have to have those people pay back those accounts. I mean, we see a lot of in, in medical collection, and a lot of the rap I think that we get in medical collections is when you have somebody who is saying, hey, you know, I have cancer or I mean, it's tragic. It is no doubt tragic. But it's not the debt collection. It's it debt collection is a symptom of a lar- much larger policy social issue that that we grapple with. Is medical care a right or a privilege? Right, and the debt collector who is collecting for the local dentist or the doctor or whatever that doctor had provided a service, and it's sort of not their fault that there's that debt to collect from. Well, that's Jan Steger. She's the executive director of the Receivables Management Association International. It's the largest trade organization for the debt buying industry. And Noam, I, I want to add one thing that that Steger also says that she thinks the system is actually a win-win for creditors and maybe sometimes even consumers because the creditor gets some liquidity back, the consumer gets to uh, pay back their debts sometimes at a reduced rate. Uh, meaning, she says the industry plays a vital role in the credit ecosystem. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to argue with her her observation that the debt market around medical debt is a symptom of a broader issue. I mean, the, the, there would be no market for medical debt if we didn't have medical debt to begin with, clearly. And there would be no sale of medical debt if hospitals didn't sell patient debt. I mean, there. I think it's also true that the the industry, particularly around medical debt, is probably a bit more, um, uh, a little less like the Wild West than it was uh, a, a couple of decades ago. The problem is that that notwithstanding efforts at self regulation, there there's a fair amount of evidence that um, there are considerable problems in how debts are being sold, the documentation that exists, the controls around personal information, and and maybe we can talk about a little bit more uh, about that later. Yeah, let's do that. And also, I want to sort of get back to this question that you raised earlier, that it's not like the mortgage industry, right, or even the sovereign debt industry. We're talking about kind of a moral question here about the cost of health care. So we'll tackle that when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. 
but pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here, so make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. I just want to remind you that tomorrow is Friday, which means it's the day that in our podcast feed we have the special drop of our podcast-only series with On Point News analyst, Jack Beattie. Over the course of the next year and more, Jack is going to be providing weekly analysis on a news and politics story or trend or insight that isn't getting enough attention. So go to our website, go to our podcast feed, excuse me, and definitely subscribe. And that way you get Jack Beattie's special podcast only weekly analysis of America, it's definitely not worth missing. It comes out every Friday. Today, we are talking about medical debt buying in the United States and why 100 million Americans have some form of medical debt that they cannot pay. And it oftentimes lands them in bankruptcy with extreme credit card debt, losing their homes, and even in court. We're joined today by Noam Levy. He's senior correspondent at Kaiser Family Foundation Health News and author of a really big series of reports called Diagnosis Debt. And we have a link to that at onpointradio.org. Now, Noam, I just want to uh, get back to that, really the core question you asked earlier, which is healthcare is different, right? People's lives are on the line. So should there even be a, a medical debt buying industry? Morally, should it exist? It is completely legal, as uh, both of us have said. But we asked that question of a couple of different people. Allison Sesso is the president and CEO of RIP, as in RIP, medical debt. And she thinks medical debt should be allowed to be, and we asked her if it should be allowed to be sold. And here's her response. Everyone is doing exactly what the what the various systems and laws and culture that we have in the United States allows for. It's not unique uh, that there's that debt is bought and sold in the United States of all kinds, uh, and this medical debt is no different. Um, do I think that it's appropriate to to buy and sell medical debt? Um, I could argue that it, it's not because it's a different kind of debt than than other kinds of debts. It's it's harder to avoid. Um, you know, you can have the best insurance and still end up in medical debt if you're out of network or and it and frankly it's hard to get good insurance, especially if you're low income. The premiums are, are increasingly high and, and out of reach for people. So you know whether or not we should ha- be able to have a market for medical debt like we do for other debts, I think is something we should probably do debate. And by the way, RIP Medical Debt is working with some state and local governments to help people discharge their medical debt. We'll hear more about that in a second. Now, here's a legal perspective. This is Keith Hagan. He's an attorney in Indianapolis who's been litigating medical debt for about five years. And he thinks when it comes to this particular form of debt, profiting from it should be illegal. If a debt collector or debt holder is going to buy a debt to have to collect on it, probably the best limitation would be you can't collect for any more than you bought this debt for. That would be a great start. And I think that's fair in that, you know, they can't buy hundred thousand worth of debt from a hospital for $5,000. If they do, they can only collect all of that debt to a total amount of $5,000. I think that's, that's probably the best start you could start with, with medical debt to try and rein in this industry. 
Because it's, and I would, I would argue, it really is different than any other kind of debt. And where you could say, well, credit card, you know, they bought things on that, they used that, they simply didn't pay it. You know, yeah, they, they, they owe that. For medical debt, you know, they didn't go out and, you know, buy a nice dinner. You know, they went to the ER because they broke their leg. You know, they had chest pains. You know, this is something they need to take care of to keep them alive. And now they're facing debts years later that are compounding with interest. Well, so Noam Levy, what uh, Keith Hagen was saying there echoed something you said earlier, but let me play devil's advocate here for a moment. First of all, just again, reminding folks, this is totally legal right now in the United States, um, and it has been for some time. Is it so awful if... Uh, if that medical debt gets sold, when, and correct me if I'm wrong, Noam, on this, but if a person has to declare bankruptcy, the debt can be discharged in bankruptcy. Well, I mean, I guess that gets at the broader question of whether or not medical bills should be driving people into, into bankruptcy, bankruptcy yeah. to begin with. I mean, it's, it, you know, w- what we're talking about is a series of, of Band-Aids, <laughs> right, around around this issue. And certainly, you know, one proposal is, like Keith Hagen was suggesting, should there be some limit on, 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 on the profits that can be extracted? I suspect there wouldn't be an industry if there was that kind of a limit. Should hospitals be barred from this kind of behavior? I mean, there's some discussion about whether hospitals should be suing people as well or, 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 or garnishing their wages or putting liens on their homes. States have taken that effect. Take, some states are taking that approach. Should medical debts be on people's credit scores? There's some discussion uh, about that at both the state and federal level. There are a whole range of sort of uh, interventions that are designed to ameliorate the worst excesses here. I mean, I think debt selling, maybe more than some of even some of these other collection tactics, is particularly problematic because there's strong document, there's strong evidence that when these debts are bought, they're not documented properly. The controls around people's personal information are not as strong as they should be. I have two stories in the works now about uh, fraudulent debt collection schemes uh-huh. that um, have started because people got hold of people's medical debt information. Um, it, it, it's, it's, and there's no accountability. There's no reporting. We, we found, we did some research on, on, on the debt collection practices of about 500 hospitals around the country as a sample of the roughly 5,000 in the country. We found about 100 plus of those have policies that allow them to, to sell debt um, now, not all of them are actively selling the debt, but but we wanted to ask them, well, how much debt have you sold over the last few years? And to whom did you sell it? I mean, I'll give you one guess how many people came back and gave us that information. Zero. Yep. <laughs> I, I'm only laughing because it's hard not to be radically cynical about that kind of thing when it comes to the to the healthcare system. It's tragic, right? It is. And, you know, when you when you inject financing, credit cards, debt collection on top of which is a system that most people have a very difficult time understanding, you know, in the best of circumstances, how many of us really understood all the mortgage papers we sold if we bought a house. Right. And then you add on top of that medical billing, which nobody understands and the way insurance works, which nobody understands. You put all that together. The patient and the debtor is so radically unprepared to deal with these industries that are all sort of feeding at the trough of unpaid medical bills that 
it's it should be no wonder that you know we find so many people are uh, yeah. are victimized by this. Well, Noam, so I just want to emphasize uh, some of the potential uh, ways to curb the negative impacts of this secondary medical debt market. I want to uh, repeat what you said, just so I'm sure I heard you clearly, because we do want to, even though they're Band-Aids, we want to talk about what kind of Band-Aids there might be. So you said capping the money that can be made from uh, from any particular account at $5,000, right? That's an idea. Well, no, no. I think what Keith Hagan was saying was that there should be some limit on the profits that, that debt collectors, you know, can can earn off of the the debt they buy. I, I haven't heard that as a proposal, but... Oh, that was just... That was, so, again, these are just ideas, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, they can't buy $100,000 worth of debt is what, what Hagen said. If they do, they can only collect all of that debt and then $5,000 of profit. Okay. And then you had also mentioned, again, these are all, all just ideas, but I want to want to give them voice here about not being able to have your credit score damaged if you end up uh, with unpaid medical debt. That's that's another idea that's out there. Yep. Okay. Uh, and then we're going to talk in a minute about the money that's being used from pandemic relief funds that uh, some state and local governments are using to help people right now. But it's very, very hard not to continue to glance upstream, right, of the debt collection and towards the core problem. You can do, you can do all these Band-Aids, right? But the patient is still ill. No, I mean, that patient is simply our for-profit healthcare well, that's system, right. right? Well, that's right. And I mean, just very briefly, I know you want to talk about, about what RIP Medical Debt is doing, but, but we, you know, we are the only wealthy country in the world that, that, that requires patients to pay so much out of pocket. You know, there's a lot of talk about Medicare for all and so forth, but I'm not talking about whether we have Medicare for all or not. I'm just talking about whether or not there's a limit on how much patients have to pay when they go to the doctor or the hospital, you know, in in Germany, for example, which has a largely private system, you know, the the hospital bills capped at ten dollars a day for the patient, and because of the way insurance is structured, whether you have one kind of health private health insurance or another kind of private health insurance, that's the cap. We expose patients to these enormous bills because of the way our health insurance is structured, and as long as that continues, you're going to have big big patient debts. And as long as you have big patient debts, there's going to be a host of these kinds of problems like like a debt buying industry. So could this not open the door to a potential solution, which, of course, the insurance industry would, you know, pull its hair and wail and gnash its teeth at, but putting in some rules that say, well, you can't charge your your uh, the people you're insuring Again, like I don't know, more than twenty bucks uh, for a hospital visit, and then well, we tr- you know we tried this a little bit. The Affordable Care Act actually did for the first time put an um, out of what was called an out of pocket maximum that if you bought a uh, if you got a health insurance plan through work or you bought it through one of these marketplaces, you could not be charged more than eight thousand something yeah, it's st- a year. I was just gonna say that was the first step. But for a lot of people, that eight thousand that eight thousand dollars is completely out of reach itself. It's it's too bit it's too high. That's right. It's unpredictable because of all the network issues. Are you in network? Are you out of network? You know what's what's a copay? What's a deductible? It's too complicated. People don't understand it, and they run afoul of it all the time because there are all kinds of issues with the way medical billing works. But yes, it was a start. We we had another step forward. 
with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act um, uh, just recently under the Biden administration, which put a lower cap on how much seniors could have to pay for their prescription drugs. So we're, we're nibbling around the edges here. But, you know, I think probably in order to engage in a constructive way uh, on this question, we have to talk about Band-Aids, the kinds of things that can, again, make the debt collection process less harmful in the short term, but not forget about the bigger discussion about how can we protect patients financially um, more, more, more systemically in our in in our healthcare system. Yeah, that continues to be the central question, right? And like every one of these conversations that we do, and we've done a lot of them with you, Noam, come back to that. Um, but again, just to, to talk a little bit about the work that's being done right now, I want to go back to Allison Sesso, president and CEO of RIP Medical Debt. And to be specific, it's a nonprofit that's working with cities, counties, and states to help those governments pay off people's medical debt. I mean, we're talking places like Cook County, Illinois, with home to Chicago, Toledo, Ohio, New Orleans, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. So far, 30 local and state governments have reached out to RIP medical debt. And a couple of years ago, the organization bought a majority of its medical debt on the secondary market that we've been talking about, meaning they're buying off or paying off debt buyers. Today, that's a little less than half of what they do. The rest of the debt they buy comes directly from the hospitals. Our first point of contact is the hospitals. We, we really try to go there first. And we again, we'll always look at the secondary market as well. But the hospitals take longer to actually execute those deals and get the hospitals on board. And we also always know that the debt's generally going to be younger we understand that what we do is a Band-Aid on a broken system. You know, we're helping people today. I mean, I think we're really critical Band-Aid. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, I think that people today need help and they need this medical debt removed. And and at the end of the day, through our work, we want to see and encourage bigger change to reduce how much medical debt's created in the first place. On average, RIP medical debt pays about a dollar to get rid of $100 of medical debt, which is comparable to rates on the secondary market. Again, as we mentioned, the medical debt buyers themselves often pay a dollar for every $100 of medical debt they buy from hospitals. So seems like RIP medical debt's getting a very similar rate from hospitals. I mean, Noam, can you talk about the, these current efforts going on, which we should say um, are being funded by uh, but pandemic-era relief funds uh, that were given to, to state governments? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, Allison, I think Allison described pretty accurately what their place in this kind of messed up environment is. I mean, there are, the fact is there are hundreds and thousands, millions of people who have medical debt that is, could be sold to, uh, to debt buyers, subjecting them to all manner of, um, harassment and uh, other unpleasantness, if that medical debt is removed, that I think can have a meaningful impact on, you know, on people's lives. Leticia, the patient who you talked to at the beginning of the program, I mean, if someone had bought that medical debt uh, and retired it, um, she would not have been sued. And that's, I think that's, you know, that's a real benefit for, for, for people in really tangible ways. Um, as Allison also acknowledged, it, 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 it is not a solution long term to the problem. And, um, you know, and I think it, it, by, by propping up the system in some way, I suppose, could you argue that they are, that RIP is complicit in this? Some people make that argument. I think, you know, 
is that outweighed by the benefit that millions of people get from not having to have medical debt hanging over them? I think you could argue that that, that benefit outweighs um, the intervention. Any intervention, you know, that doesn't change the problem, I suppose you could argue, is 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 contributing to it. But I, I think the issue here is that because there is this market, there should be ways to help patients um, avoid it. I should ask, we've got about a min, less than a minute left, Noam. Um, we've mentioned the word market, market, market a lot. So does that mean that this industry should also, or does it also fall uh, under FTC rulemaking and, and guidance? Could the federal government play a bigger role here? So the federal government does regulate this market and, in fact, has um, uh, has taken enforcement actions against debt collectors repeatedly uh, over, over the last few decades. I think when they did a major report a couple of years ago, they found about 80 enforcement actions against debt collectors in the past 30 or so years. So they are in this space. They are regulating it. And um, could they do more? Probably yes. But we're still at the place where we began with your reporting that there are 100 million Americans who are still uh, facing the problems with this medical debt that they cannot pay. Well, Noam Levy, senior correspondent at Kaiser Family Foundation's Health News or KFF Health News, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Magna. And by the way, we have a link to Noam's extensive reporting on medical debt buying at onpointradio.org. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs> 